Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to uh, study your word, to uh, study you, to know uh, more about you, how you work, uh, what the great and godly men who've gone before us have uh, thought about your ways in the world, uh, dealing with us and who you are in and of yourself and how you have imparted yourself to us. We pray that you would meet us in this hour, bless this time, help us to draw near to you with our head and our hearts and our hands. Uh, we ask that you would uh, be with Pilgrim Hill uh, Reform Fellowship here, that we would, we would be people um, about uh, your word, devotion, uh, piety, uh, acts of service, all of the things that you command your people, that we would be missing no good deed, uh, that you would meet us now and build us up more and more into the image of your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So um, if you have any questions uh, at any point, things here, if you look back on your notes about the Westminster Standards, uh, something that you didn't get to before, idea you've had, comment you want to make, this is the time for that. We are leaving space uh, for you guys, so feel free to shoot up your hand. Heck, you can, you can interrupt. We're, we're big kids here, so go for it. Um, I hopefully will try to, Brooks and I are going to try to spur your uh, curiosity, get your imagination going, help you remember some of the questions that you've forgotten that you had over the last uh, 10 sessions here. And so my uh, funny idea uh, is to, um, I, who here has ever heard of TULIP, the reformed thing of TULIP? So TULIP was not originally the definition of reformed theology. There was uh, Martin Luther, then there was, the next generation was John Calvin, and then the generation after that uh, was the big pushback amongst other Protestants. So there was a guy named Jake, Jacob Arminius, um, not from Armenia, not, now don't get this confused with the country of Armenians, leave the poor Azerbaijan and Armenians alone. Um, his last name was Armin, and so then but this, this was the day when everybody thought Latin was super cool, and so you added the I-U-S at the end of your name. Um, and so Jacob Arminius um, was the guy who had five big objections to Calvinism. He did not like it, and I used to know this. I, I've forgotten it because it's the other side, the, the people I don't believe. Uh, they had something, I think, and it, and it was roses, and maybe it was in Dutch. Uh, maybe they had some acronym about the five points that they believed against uh, what was going on in uh, Geneva, uh, that they had five points called roses. To this, the people on our side, the Reformed types who stuck with the teaching of Calvin and others, uh, answered with TULIP. And so you can see there on the page, TULIP is an acronym that stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, I'll go through these again in a minute, uh, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. Unfortunately, and so tulips was also, you know, if you've ever, if you've known anybody who's Dutch, A, they're really into being Dutch. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. They've probably told you at some point. And B, the Dutch are known for their tulips. They grow a lot of tulips. Even where I lived north of Seattle, there was just basically an entire county full of nothing but tulips, uh, where the Dutch people were. Skagit County has got a tulip fair. You can just, it's as far as the eye can see is tulips. So... 
It's very pretty, and it's a good thing to make people remember some theology. Unfortunately, the words have changed meaning a lot in the intervening centuries. To the point where, very famously, starting with that first one, total depravity, our hero and great guy C.S. Lewis was like, oh, heck no, I cannot affirm total depravity. It's not like people are as bad as they could be, which is not at all what they meant when they called the phrase total depravity. So me, upon hearing this, 25-year-old me, thought, Okay, so let's update the word, is that we, when they said total back then, they meant in every area. And we all know this from when we talk with our neighbors, and they're like, oh yeah, people are definitely um, messed up, but you choose God or not. The, the will, they, maybe they never say this. Most, I think most people, most Baptist people around us would never say this, but that they have this built-in assumption that the will is not fallen, that, that you have the capacity to still choose good or evil, and that you are presently neutral in this life until you go one way or the other. Um, I was just listening to a bluegrass song just a minute ago at home, and it said, in this life, there's a lot of ways uh, you, you, could, you could know, but in heaven, there's only two choices for the way you can go, uh, is, uh, is, is the idea that there's, there's a lot of choices down here, but your free will uh, means, your, means your will is unfallen, is what they mean by that. I, I don't know. When I've talked to Catholics in Eastern Orthodox, every one of them has been different. So I, I don't – they say they don't have denominations. My favorite one here, you know James White? He, 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 used to, he debates Catholics all the time, and the Catholics always whip out that there are 9,000 Protestant denominations. And, and so he finally found the source for where they get that number of some world religions – survey, pew type thing. And that same source says there are 390 Catholic denominations, Roman Catholic denominations. And that certainly has been my experience, is that, to answer your question, the ones that I talked to in St. Louis would all say that God gives an injection of righteousness and actually gives you something, right, some righteous aspect he reshapes you and then you're justified that you're not that they they say it against luther's simul justus right and so they're going against that by saying there is something righteous in you when god declares you righteous not that he declares you righteous before there is righteousness in you Part of our being are not touched by the fall, and it's that part of us that is then 
choosing God. Right. And we'd be forced to say that we are righteous in some sense by nature. Well, and that Protestants who do this tend to say not that it's righteous, but that they claim a neutralness. That they claim that there is some part of you that is neither for nor against God, which ought to come back to say, like, what kind of God are you talking about then that has parts of the universe that aren't his, that he doesn't lay claim to? Is that the, the, the key thing to me when I meet people with this kind of proposed neutrality is to say, oh, that's sinful, <laughs> that either you're under the lordship of Christ or you're in rebellion and that there's not. If you're not under the lordship of Christ, you're in rebellion in that area. There can't be a neutral. Right, right yeah. That like, but, you know, the, the devil cast one vote for you uh, against. Yeah, that famous one. There, so. so, yeah, that, 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 the entire concept of such neutrality is, I guess, analogous to the Eastern Orthodox and Roman position. But they, they couch it in such different language. So um, my proposal then for a more useful word, a more helpful word uh, than total depravity is systemic depravity. That it is, so if you go to the hospital and you have a leg infection, that's one thing, that's bad, put some ointment on it, whatever. If you have a systemic infection, it is all over and you're needing an IV of antibiotics or at least oral antibiotics that can go everywhere in you. That, that the fault line between fallen and unfallen runs through every human being. That there are parts of you that are closer to the image of God and parts of you that are further, but that there is no aspect of you that hasn't been affected by the fall to some extent. There, there was the viral video this week here, to keep it, keep it relevant to the teenagers here, uh, was there was some kid at the beach and there was sort of a rocky... Uh, cliff kind of thing and this kid just goes off mom what if somebody walked up to that and she's really close to the edge and just shoved them and she'd fall off and she'd die and the mom said those are what are called intrusive thoughts and we and we don't say them out loud but why mom and i really wanted and like the video cut off i wanted to hear the mom's explanation about why we don't say those here of like what was she going to say to that kid is that I, I would have thought that would have been a great case for total depravity right there is that Adam and Eve did not have the like, I could shove her and she could die kind of thoughts that then you're like, no, don't, don't go with that. But that, um, and then um, the other modern twist on that, what was the, mo- oh, the teenage girls are all in there. There was the, they would all know the Tom Holland, uh, Daisy Ridley movie that was from a sci-fi book where they land on this alien planet and all the boys' thoughts are called noise and they come out loud. They, yeah, yeah, see, okay, see, he gets total depravity. Is that, like, I, that would be the end of all social life. Like, you could not live near anyone if all your intrusive thoughts were just broadcast all the time. Like, what is in us, maybe, maybe especially men, but what, what is in all of us is, is not good now, and, and that even people who hold their conduct together still have the th- thoughts uh, that they reject, but we, we are all fallen in every aspect of our being. So then, yeah, I've just ruined it, now it's not tulip, now it's sulip. So then I thought I had to keep going and see if I could come up with a new acronym there. But, but let me pause right there. Any 
questions or comments or anything about total depravity versus the Robert innovation of systemic depravity? What do you think? Can I get an amen? Systemic depravity. Lewis would have gone for it then. We wouldn't have lost C.S. Lewis. Oh, that's such a bummer. All right. Um, And then I didn't get a chance to listen to last Sunday. Um, Was that unconditional election? No, effectual calling. Okay, so unconditional election is, again, a counter-reformational, uh, uh, a, a counter-counter-reformational idea that the people who opposed Calvinism said, God looks down the corridors of time and sees who will choose him, and then before they can do it, he chooses them. Uh, is, is this idea. And some of them have a more fancy version of that um, called middle knowledge. And there are good people who hold this opinion, uh, William Lane Craig probably being the best among them. He's really brilliant. But his view on time, honestly, I just find to be nuts. Um, he, he's an amazing debater and philosopher. And uh, he's at Biola? He was actually one of my Oh, that's right. Yeah, you. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, that, it even, yeah, even if you get what he's talking about, I would still disagree with him. He's, but, but, the, but this kind of idea that it is based a little bit on something about you that God would pick. We would say, no, for by grace you are saved through faith, faith and this not of yourselves. That, you know, so many times when God is speaking to Israel, Deuteronomy 32 and 12 and a lot of different places, like, you were the least of all the countries. Like, if, if we were having a beauty pageant, y'all were last. Um, you know, and then in Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were handsome. You know, he doesn't say it, But that there's a lot of disqualifications that God is not picking us because of our uh, intrinsic goodness. Um, which really makes it super difficult then for what do you do with um, Song of Solomon uh, in the Bible? It's probably the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret because if you do what a lot of church fathers did and say this is God's in love with the church, Jesus is in love with the church, there's a whole lot of eros. There's a whole lot of I like you because of your you. I like you because of how you look. Uh, which is not sinful, um, but um, that that's not how God loves the church is uh, <laughs> my favorite one. I told Clint this already is Origen um, wrote a whole commentary on the Song of Solomon. And he says, John the Baptist is the sachet of myrrh between the two breasts of the Old and New Testament. There is that like, <laughs> like the amount they have to stretch that book to try to make it fit their preconceived idea. Is, is just killer. Is, it's, it's not, God, it, God's love for us is not love because of, but love in spite of, uh, of who we are. And that's really what... To be fair, if I remember correctly, Origen actually made himself a unit by choice physically. True. Perhaps yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, that lost on him. Yeah, right, yeah. He, he, <laughs> Origen and uh, Eros love were like this. Yeah, that, that, that's... <laughs> So unconditional election, I'm not, I don't, I, I, a U works in my, uh, in my scheme here. I'm going to leave the U uh, there. And then if you've ever met anybody, usually some Reformed Baptist, somebody will tell you that they're a four-point Calvinist. 
that they cannot get behind all five of these. And here's the one where we lose even our closest followers is, and again, the name is really, really rude, limited atonement. Jesus had a curfew. Jesus had a, a, an outermost edge that he could reach to, uh, is that there was a limit to how far his atonement goes, uh, how far it reaches. And that's just a very unfortunate uh, word choice. Uh, as opposed to James White, um, was I saw his video this week, and he said, Jesus's sacrifice saves everyone it was intended to save. That was, that was his point this week. Uh, and that it is, therefore, so my alternate phraseology would be particular redemption. God is under no obligation to save everyone, uh, but he has chosen of himself to save all the elect, all the people that he has predestined to save. And I would add one more. If that still doesn't sit right with you, I would add uh, be post-mill. And, uh, and then the number of those being saved, the number of people who say they are Christian now and are baptized and go to church nearly every week is greater both in raw numbers and percentage of human beings right now than it ever has been. And that has generally been true every year for the last 2,000 years. That more and more and more people are being saved. So, honestly, I don't think it's super crazy that, like, maybe Jonathan Edwards was one of the first modern post-mill people, is that when you have, you look out at the scope of humanity and you're like, what, is God saving 10% of people, 5% of people? That's kind of pessimistic looking like that. Now, out of the 8 billion people on earth, we have 3 billion say they are Christian and uh, go to church at least monthly. So, like, it's growing. And, you know, remember the, the first, there were, there were the apostles in the upper room. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 are saved on the first Pentecost. This is the, the kingdom is a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds, and it grows more than we can imagine. And if this trend continues, then the number and, and the world's population is, is growing exponentially, then the number of those saved uh, on earth, you know, is, exceeds the number of those saved in heaven uh, pretty soon. So I feel like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a downer way to say it, limited atonement, as opposed to God purposed to save certain people and Jesus came and paid for their sins and doesn't do uh, double jeopardy where Jesus paid for their sins, maybe if they accept it, but, or he did, and that person rejects God and then they go to hell and they pay for it again. The same sins are paid for twice. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me uh, as justice. God is just. So if... If you are of the elect, and there's not a list in the back of the Bible to tell you who they are, you need to pray and be in earnest and, and follow. Uh, but that if you are of God's elect, Jesus paid for your sins versus those who reject God pay for their sins themselves. It's particular redemption. That's a tough one. Right. Yes. Right. Even if 
sum means 99 of 100, but still sum. Right. He is capable of paying for every single last human being. Right. It was sufficient for all, but only sufficient for all. Yeah. Yeah, it's also true that everyone, every Christian who believes, who has faith in Christ, believes in limited atonement. They just differ on who limits it. I mean, there are genuine universalists. Right. Well, so besides the universalist camp, right. Basically yeah. believes that uh, in limited atonement because some people are in hell. Right. Like, if you believe there's one person there, you're you're you believe in limited you atonement. That, that person in and of themselves limits that that atonement rather than God being some. And I just think that again, maybe just for the purposes of getting a cool acronym out of it, is that the the limited is sounds negative versus particular, like he chose, is maybe sounds positive. Yes, right. Maybe, yeah. So we could go either one of those here. If you can rearrange the letters, make it work. Um, The fourth one uh, is uh, irresistible grace. And again, this just sounds very strange. The word picture that comes to mind that I almost think I heard somebody actually say, maybe it was an Arminian person characterizing uh, Calvinism, was like, you know, that um, what's the, you're, you're going somewhere and you're, Last somebody in your group pulling them in towards you, and they're fighting you. They don't want to go. It's like I mean, there there are some people who come kicking and screaming into the kingdom. It's it's true, but that God calls you to be saved. He puts he gives you saving faith, and it your dead will. You're being dead in trespasses and sin. You're not going to resist that. I think this is where this is especially the one the famous ad hominem against Calvinism is that you're all robots. You believe that you're being Pinocchioed, uh, marionetted uh, by God, and that he calls people and then you've lost. A couple weeks ago when I taught Sunday school, you lose that first one that's that you, everybody has free will. Everybody does according to their strongest inclination at all times. And that um, instead we are saying uh, God is more powerful than sin. So rather than calling it irresistible grace, like I wanted to resist, but I couldn't. What? No, that's not. That, that, instead, to then say effectual calling. So that was last Sunday. Yeah. <clears throat> Questions from last Sunday or word choice on that or anything? If you have any questions, it's, it goes to Brooks because that was last Sunday. And then the last one, I'm not beefing with the uh, idea in any way, perseverance of the saints, that those who God is saving will persevere unto the end. I just didn't want to have my uh, acronym be SUPEP. SUPEP. Uh, so uh, SUPER is just then I just changed it to remaining to the end so that I could get the very powerful, awesome acronym of reform theology is SUPER. Yeah, so like that, that kind of uh, idea is that Tulips are great. I love flowers, but um, super is, we should all get capes, uh, is, is better. <clears throat> Questions. Have you guys heard about tulip before or thought through that? I'm a four-pointer. What, what, what are some things? And who's heard of tulip before? Did, was, it, was it something that was said negatively when you were considering Reformed theology? Or, or what was your, anybody's... Experience with tulip, if you can share. I had the same view with the 
that was the that was what eased my entire uh, my qualms with with limited atonement. The idea that God would not uh, pay for Hitler's sins and then make Hitler pay for his own sins again. That that realizing that that makes God unjust was kind of like a light bulb moment for me in that one. Yeah. yeah. I agree with the very much caricature of this. Mm. intended yes <laughs> when, when I was reading my way into reformed theology the campus pastor at college where I was at there he he was very worried for me and all this uh, stuff that I was reading and so he said he, he thought he came up with the ultimate bumper sticker and he said like pray like a Calvinist and work like an Arminian uh, was was his uh, saying that he tried to say to me. It was along those lines of like, okay, take the word of God seriously, have faith that God is in control, God is sovereign, and then work like it depended on you. And honestly, that was a huge burden. I, I, I want to work very hard still as a Calvinist um, because God has said, these are the, I'm ordinarily going to work through my church, that that is the, you know, God is free to work outside of us but that the main way that God is acting in the world is through his body. And so that, that did not work. His, his bumper, I never got the bumper sticker uh, because I remember they would have the call to um, evangelism and there would be a missions Sunday or something. And this was, I was in college. It was a college town. I think the town had a population of like 35, 40,000 and there were 20 or 30,000 college students in this town. So like the town population halved every June and then doubled every September or whatever it was. And so they would, at the beginning of the Mission Sunday one time, they got somebody to um, have like a fire alarm kind of sound. You could tell it wasn't the actual buildings on fire, let's evacuate, but they had, and the guy came in in fireman gear and he was a, one of the church members was a volunteer firefighter. And he said, if we are at a fire, this is a true thing in Bellingham, Washington, if we are at a fire at a residence in town and then the fire alarm goes off for the university, we drop our hoses, hop onto the fire truck and hit recall on the hoses while we are driving down the street, letting them bounce on the concrete because the population density at the university is 300 times what it is anywhere else in town. And yet here you are, Adam, uh, not living in the dorms, not evangelizing people for Christ at Western Washington University. And they're going to hell due to your failure to live in the dorms and evangelize your neighbors. And so I, 
as a true Pentecostal, <laughs> I moved back into the dorm sophomore year uh, after uh, living, or junior year after living off campus sophomore year. But, and then I, that was when about the time I was getting reformed and I was just like, is, is this really the way it works? Like, it's on me. Like, their salvation ultimately comes down to, did I have enough smoke and mirrors and lights and presentation and mood music uh, and, and ambiance and essential oils to lure them to Christ? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I, was, I, I had you. Yeah, I lost you at essential oils. Right, which is expressly there in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Yes. God desires that all men should be saved. I think for, for me, the, the crucial thing is not to use Romans 9, Ephesians 1, these famous predestination passages are not something that a bunch of non-Christians sitting around looking right together, who's going to get saved? You're going to get saved? You're going to, well, some, one of us is predestined, predestined to. Let's see who it is, and then you can just do whatever you want because you're predestined and you're going to make it. Is that all those passages that use that foreordination language, especially Ephesians 1, um, are, I am saved. How did I get here? Is what is the difference between, you know, I, I, I definitely, when I was in, in seminary, my dad was not yet uh, a, a churchgoer. And I just, every now and then, would just break down just bawling about, like, why am I here hearing this amazing teaching at seminary and all this stuff and my dad is just stalwartly opposed like my mom was a christian for 30 years before my dad agreed to go to church with her once like you know was it first corinthians 7 about the like like she had the freedom to leave for 30 years and didn't and amazing stalwartness on her part but the just just bawling about what is the difference between me and my dad. Like, I've, I'm, you know, all my siblings agree. I'm just the closest to a photocopy of my dad there is. And, and so the, where does that difference lie? Is it, is, it, is it down to my choice versus his choice? Is it ultimately the difference is me and my will? Or do I give glory to God even for the faith that I have? That God gave me that, that saving faith to, to follow him. That the, all those predestination passages are attributing that to Christ, to God. He, he made us new. He, while we were dead in sin, Christ died for us. That the, the initiation, the difference, and there, there's a million things that flow out of that consequentially as a difference. But then you ultimately come down to what made the fork in the road. And I, got to, I have to give glory to God is that that is not me, is, is the crucial difference there. Yeah, and I think what's, what's true is, is Romans 9 really does, not only does it answer, it anticipates that exact question. 
So if no one can resist his will, essentially, then whose fault is it? And Paul's answer is perhaps less than satisfying. He says, who are you, O man, to question God? And, Very Job. Right, and, and, and that's where it's tough because he goes on to give a, almost like perhaps, but he's, he's instructing us and under inspired by the Lord, that God will do all things for his glory, including the damnation of, of the reprobates, um, where even the, the, his bride will, will see the mercy and the justice of God manifest. And that's just a really hard teaching. And why it's so hard is because it makes me think I'm more compassionate than God, um, which, is, which is not true, or that I'm more loving than God. And so that, that's just very deep, humbling water, which is why Paul essentially says, be careful here. <laughs> it makes sense you want to work it out, but um, who can understand? Well, and the, the, what does it mean to work it out? Is that if at any point in theology you come down to and you're like, I've got this. It's totally in hand. I, you know, for, they, they were very careful when my group, that my cohort graduated. They did this to every cohort at seminary. They said, your degree says masters of divinity, but you have been mastered by divinity. You are not the master of divinity here. Is that at any point, if you say, I understand exhaustively, perfectly, then you're, then, then you're really lost. Then, you're, then you have failed to get it. And so Jesus, you know, at, at every point, this is going to sound really dangerous. Um, if at, at any point when you find an essential truth, there is some sense in which the opposite is true. Let me, let me, let me tell you what I mean here. I'll be careful with this. Jesus is totally, 100% a human being. If you just stop right there, then you're a heretic, and, and, and like that, that's bad. And he is 100% God. Now, this is another great example of one plus one, in this case, equals two. There's a lot of funky math in, in theology. One plus, another place, one plus one plus one equals one. Uh, but that Jesus is not 200%. He's not two people. He's, he's, one, he's, he's you know, one person with two natures, all those sort of things. Fully God and fully human. And if you can square that circle, then you would be God. That we cannot hold all of that in our mind at the same time. And it's, it's like trying to shove two north magnets together or something. Is that that's not, that is bigger than us. It's not a contradiction. I'm not saying A and not A at the same time and in the same way. But it is a paradox of like, I cannot shove those together into one neat package. So the one here that we're talking about is God is totally sovereign. There is no rogue molecule in the universe doing what it wants and thumbing its nose at Yahweh. And you are responsible exercising your free will and the decisions you make actually matter as an image bearer of God to hurt others, obey God, sin or not sin. And I cannot, there are a lot of things I can do to talk about that, but I cannot shove those together into one simple pretty thing for you. This is uh very ironically in in the reading Chesterton uh orthodoxy. Yeah. The holding together the uniqueness of Christianity is being able to hold together furious opposites. And keep them both furious and opposites. Yeah, actually three is going to be more of what they are. Antinomies, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. And that this is and so I, you know, when, when I, I get, I have some sympathy for these people who say they are Cal, Calminian or something like that, is that they're wanting to keep the tension. Yeah. 
but that that is also been a tradition like you know in orthodox small o orthodox theology from the beginning is that this is the part about mystery that to say that like we cannot exhaustively explain this and that the people who believe what we believe and call themselves calvinists or reformed uh, have have held like yeah this is i'm willing to affirm the sovereignty of god and rather than in order to keep the responsibility and free will of human beings, I'm going to denigrate the sovereignty of God and say he can't do certain things with respect to human beings, is that I'm going to hold on to both of those and I'm not able to shove them together, but that I am going to keep what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Um, using philosophy and experience to dictate their theology and trying to marry that philosophy and experience with the scripture uh, rather than letting the scripture just speak for itself and not have to square, not have to try and square the circle. So the, that, that's what was appealing to me was seeing in the reform side to say, hey, we're holding these two things that seem like they're in contradiction with one another, but the scripture says them both. And we just have to go with that. And not, so that, that's what I think is really appealing uh, to the reform side of things. It says, no, we're going to actually just go with what the scripture says. We can't make sense of And the scripture does that antinomy thing, and the, the opposites together. And like sometimes it's really, really jarring. Um, Galatians chapter 6, I think in the space of like the first 10 verses, says... Everybody should bear their own load and, and not be a burden to others. And then with nine verses later, it says, bear one another's burdens and so be the church. It gets worse. There's the worst. I forget where it is in Proverbs where it says, do not answer a fool uh, uh, according to his folly, lest he be uh, wise in, in his own eye, you know, and answer a fool according to his, like, those are the two next verses right after each other. And so... I think th- this is what's, what's so great about preaching through books of the Bible, like, as we do here, is, is that you get a text and it can be all human responsibility. It can be all, this is on you, you have a choice, make a decision, fall, you know, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord, Joshua 24, kind of like, this is on you to make a decision today. Will you go back to the gods of your fathers or will you follow Yahweh? And then there are... Uh, Ephesians 2 type places where it says, you know, you, you did not cho- choose me, I chose you, and I gave you saving faith so, that faith so that you would follow me, is that both of those are true. And the scripture in one place here and one place there, it's the same God, but it's, it's not something we can squish together and make it be simple. Like we, and if it would be, then what kind of God would we be? God smaller than us if we could simplify it that way. Um, at the bottom here and onto the back, I tried to summarize 1 through 10 of the Westminster Standards. Uh, we don't have time to go into all of that here. Um, the, the, at the t- right, so at the end of my tulip into super thing, 
I did find, actually, okay, I'll be honest. I asked ChatGPTBot to um, <laughs> summarize uh, the whole of, group together Westminster into categories. And it was, I, I, I did work on it some. I did not just take what it said. But that the idea that chapters one through five are God and his word, six through eight is about covenants, Adam versus the, the first Adam versus the last second Adam um, and covenants. And now we are in here the, soteriology is the fancy big word for the way of salvation. So that's a big chunk that we're going to have the next five after this here. So our goal is every five to have one of these Q&A type sessions, FAQ type stuff. Um, so that will, will still be in the salvation chunk um, next time. Um, and then 25 to 29 is the church. And then 31, at the very fittingly, the end is about last things, the end of the Westminster Standards. So, um, yeah, I think we should stop about there. Look this over. Uh, there's lots of great adjectives and nouns about God and uh, a lot of good things in there. Uh, keep your handouts. We're trying so that at the end, if you keep your handouts week by week, you would end up with a full copy with the scripture uh, citation uh, of the, the Westminster Standards. Um, there are some people among us here who are going for deacon, and so they are required to assent not nitpick and be able to teach, but to agree to, uh, th that this is a good system of doctrine. You, as members, the rest of you, uh, are um, simply being edified by this, and you're welcome to disagree, and we would love to um, have discussion with this more with you beyond Sunday school. Um, that Remember, the, the way our denomination works is that being a member is a good faith profession you, you can, I follow Christ. I affirm the Apostles' Creed. That's it. You get communion. You're a member. Happy day. Um, and then deacon is I, I can affirm these, and then elder is I can teach these. So that's there, – there are denominations that say you have to agree with everything before you get communion. So Jessica and I had to go through 12 weeks of class on TULIP uh, before we were allowed to get – uh, URC communion. Uh, yes, we were. And, and it, was, it was good wine, too. So that was, but anyway, that is not where we are. Look this over. Come up with questions, Brooks and I, and any, lots of people who've been teaching these, Clint and Josh and, and others, would love to talk with you about this anytime. Please keep thinking about this and, and being rest. Is that in scripture? That's why we give you the ones with the scripture references. You can look this up and you can test this. Be a Berean. Test this. Uh, and make sure it squares with what the Bible says. So uh, why don't we stand and pray, and then uh, we'll get ready for the Lord's service. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, sharing so much of yourself with us in your word, and first and foremost in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can see your good character on display, that um, you, for the, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross to win us to yourself. How much you love us is beyond our understanding. And we can see lots of hard things about ourselves and the wrath that we deserve about our neighbors, about the state of human beings, the state of the human soul and human nature is bleak 
and uh, we can't and don't expect our neighbors uh, who don't know and trust you and live their lives centered around you to, to face such harsh realities squarely. Lord, we pray that we would be people who, uh, who know the truth uh, because you have come to set us free. Help us to face squarely what is in your word, what you have said about yourself, and uh, to know your good heart and love towards us as evidenced uh, in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray.